Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome listeners to another mini review series. This week and next week, Alan and I will be looking at two very influential films. Last week, we reviewed Jinro, The Wolf Brigade, and Elang, The Wolf Brigade. We looked at how an anime influenced a live-action film. Well, this week, we're looking at how a live-action film has influenced an anime and many other films as well. So, we are reviewing Fritz Lang's 1927 Metropolis. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan, and I mean, as far as I can tell, this is the oldest movie that we've reviewed so far. We said that for King Kong, but this is about six years younger than King Kong. Would you, wouldn't you believe it? But 1927. We just beat our record for the oldest movie reviewed here on Silver Screen Guide. Metropolis was released January 19th, 1927. That was over 93 years ago. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny, too, because this is not the oldest movie that I own. The oldest movie I own is actually held by uh, Dr. Calab- Calabari from 1920. Now, they're both German expressionism, German expressionistic films. But this I saw this one, I guess, technically first. I didn't really see it all the way through, but I knew about this one before I knew about Dr. Calabari. And this one was also written by... Fritz Lang's wife, actually, Tia von Harbour, and she did write a novel that appeared in a magazine, more like a novella, and that is what they based the screenplay off of. And this really incredible score that we got to hear a re-recording of was done by Gottfried Huppertz. Now, originally, the budget for this film was 800,000 Reichmarks. Like Alan said, this is a German film. And Fritz Lang, when he came to New York City, It really just blew his mind, honestly. He said, I have to make a movie about a giant sprawling city. And he had to combine his experiences in Germany with the Soviet Union as well. So he wanted to make this movie into the biggest film ever. Now, I want to say up front here real quick, we are not going to be going into the full background of Metropolis. The story of Metropolis, that came out last Tuesday, so if you want the full background into the film, go ahead and listen to that because that will give you a very full, uh, rich story of how Metropolis uh, was written, how it came to be, and really its lasting impact on cinema, and how it eventually came to be restored. This is just a very quick, condensed view, so we we can jump right into the review after this, but... Unfortunately, the budget ballooned to 3.5 million Reichmarks, and when it came to the German box office, it only grossed 75,000 Reichmarks. It did not do well at the German box office whatsoever, and of course, it didn't do well overseas as well. The Soviet Union didn't like it. They thought they were being critical of it, so they weren't going to let it be shown there, and then... We'll talk about this a little bit more in the review, but it was notoriously cut down by Paramount here in the United States. 
Yeah, I do remember that they were, I think there exists like four or five different cuts of this movie, all of various lengths. I know that the one that I own in my collection is the two hour cut. And so that one was released in 2001, but we did, you did get to get your hands on the complete Metropolis, which I haven't seen yet, which is two and a half hours. So, and I know that you also watched the eighties, the one from the eighties as well. So there are a lot of cuts that kind of exist for this movie that uh, for one reason or another, the footage has just been lost to time. Uh, as you stated, the Soviet Union didn't really like it. And I thought there were some significant cuts for various reasons, but they've got most, especially now with the complete metropolis, they've got most of it there. And despite it being a very compromised cut throughout the century, audiences and critics alike have come to adore this film. It currently holds an 8.3 on IMDb, making it the 112th greatest film of all time. And then over on Rotten Tomatoes, critically, it has a 97% certified fresh and audiences gave it a 92%. And then over on Metascore, it has a 98, nearly a perfect 100. So clearly critics and audiences have adored this movie. And that's exactly what we're here to talk about is what makes Metropolis so special. Because if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that we have brought this movie up without seeing it yet we just knew the influence it had had on cinema and that's that's pretty obvious once we talk about it through this review right and it's also kind of interesting because i know that we bring up blade runner a lot on this podcast like a ton well come to find out this movie in a lot of ways inspired a lot of the design of blade runner as no we'll probably get into here in a second but it's just kind of funny this is kind of like i guess the original idea for a lot of design work for a lot of movies because especially for 1927 this is extremely impressive especially for just set design alone it is really cool because we do bring up blade runner frequently and the impact that has had on other science fiction films after it but it's cool to go back and see how Metropolis has influenced Blade Runner and Star Wars, just uh, so many science fiction films. Right. So it's 2010, okay? And the complete Metropolis is, well, it's now complete, and they are pushing it out on into some film festivals and eventually onto Blu-ray. Alan, if you saw this trailer back in 2010, would you be wanting to get your hands on a copy? If I had, I guess, the foreknowledge of what Metropolis was in 2010, which I think I did. Um, I think I would be very uh, intrigued by the idea that finally Metropolis is, by well, by version of the title, complete now. There is a purchasable copy of the pretty practically finished product, again, after 90 years of being kind of lost to time, of Metropolis. So yeah, if, I, if back in 2010, if I had the foreknowledge of Metropolis, I would be very intrigued by uh, by seeing this, finally being able to see the complete Metropolis. I as well would be very intrigued to see the film. I'm not sure if my 15-year-old self would have tracked down a copy and would have been very interested in it. Of course, I still loved cinema and I loved black and white movies. I hadn't seen a whole lot of silent films because... We haven't said it yet, but this is a silent film. So the trailer with my 25-year-old eyes looks truly amazing, and I couldn't wait to get my hands on a copy of it. 
and probably what would intrigue me the most is that extra 25 minutes and also the image quality looks so good it looks so tantalizing and i have always been fascinated with director's cuts extended cuts i have always wanted to go farther into the world even if i wasn't that into the movie so knowing that this movie that had this almost 100 year old movie and now you get to experience the full version i think even seeing that extra footage alone really would have piqued my interest and now, as Alan mentioned earlier, neither of us had fully seen this movie before the review. We did finally get to see The Complete Metropolis. We had both watched, um, I watched all of the versions that are commercially available for the film. There is the 1980s version from Giorgio Morodo, and he beat out David Bowie <laughs> for the rights to the movie. And that actually reintroduced people to Metropolis. And then there is the 2001 reauthorized edition, which is better, but it's still kind of a mess in a lot of ways. And then finally, The Complete Metropolis. So that was my journey finally getting to watch this movie. So I really delved deep into it. Yeah. And like I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, I knew Metropolis for a number of years and it was on Netflix for a while. So I was able to watch parts of it. And I think it was maybe even on Amazon Prime at one time as well. Although I think that the score was redone for that. It may have even been the 1980s version, if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, I didn't make it very long into that one because I was not a very big, scan of, very big fan of the score of whatever version it was. Either way, I did watch pieces of it on Netflix and, and Amazon Prime. And then my cousin had actually bought, it was like some uh, horror slash sci-fi box set of just like a bunch of movies that he got from Walmart for like five bucks. And Metropolis was in there. And I said, I want that Metropolis disc. And he says, here, you can just have it yeah. and gave it to me. And it was the 20 it is the chosen one version. Um, so that one is, my, is is in my collection. So that was my journey. I never actually watched it all the way through. I uh, watched pieces of it again, but never really sat and watched it straight through to the end up until, of course, to, for this review. So that is funny enough as that's my first time watching that disc all the way through that's in my collection. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen Metropolis and you don't want the film spoiled for you, which I highly recommend you don't have this film spoiled for you. I, I mean, I'm sure like anybody who has a passing familiarity with film has seen at least a still image from this, particularly the Machine Man is an incredibly iconic yeah. uh, part of this film. Let that tantalize you like it did me. Let that intrigue you. I saw still images. I couldn't wait to see this movie. This movie was really built up to me. So I'm hoping I'm building it up to you as well. So you will go out and watch this. Even if you've never watched a silent movie before, I would say this is a great place to start. Don't let that deter you from wanting to watch this movie. So we are about to get into spoilers. Make sure to click pause right now, then come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Down in the depths of the earth, the workers toil endlessly in order to serve at the behest of the wealthy businessmen whose sons just play all day in the garden of eternal pleasure. One day, a kind-hearted woman named Maria, played by Bridget Helm, brings a group of children up to the garden, where she sees Frieder, played by Gustav Frolic, for the first time. Although she is turned away, Frieder is instantly in love and searches everywhere for her, even in the underground city, where he sees the dark side of the metropolis. Eventually, after pleading with his father, Joe Friederson, played by Alfred Abel, to stop abusing the workers, Frieder decides to switch places and live as one of them. 
See, Friedersen is the master of Metropolis, and he resides atop the city in the new Tower of Babel. After his laborious shift ends, Frieder travels with his fellow workers even deeper underground into the catacombs. There, he finally sees Maria again as she preaches to the men about the heart being the mediator between the head and the hands. And she then tells the biblical story of the Tower of Babel, and how the schemers who thought themselves gods were eventually undone by their own plans. Maria also speaks of a chosen one, a mediator who will unite the workers and their masters. That mediator just so happens to be Frieder. Meanwhile, Friedersen meets with the mad scientist Rotwang, played by Rudolf Klein-Roh, who lives in a small house within the metropolis. Rotwang obsesses over his lost daughter Hel, who just so happens to be the mother Frieder never knew since she perished in childbirth. Earlier, Friedersen acquired plans to the catacombs, which Grot, the foreman of the heart machine, kept finding in the workers' pockets. Rotwang leads him down where they both see Maria holding sway over the workers. Friedersen commands Rotwang to capture Maria and turn his new machine man into the likeness of Maria in order to control the workers. But the joke is on Friedersen, though, because Rotwang tells the robot to turn the workers against their master and in so doing, destroy the city. The new Maria causes the men up top to lust after her and murder each other for her, and then she leads the workers to destroy the machines, which causes catastrophic flooding of their homes. Eventually, she is burned at the stake by the workers because they believe their children perished in the flood. But they didn't perish. They were saved by the real Maria, who, who escaped Rod Wang and is aided by Frieder as they are reunited. Frieder tells Maria he'll meet her in the cathedral after he quells the mob, which is shocked to see Maria was a robot all along. Rotwang, now truly mad, finds Maria in the cathedral and scales the top with her. Frieder comes to the rescue once again, saving Maria and kicking Rotwang off, which causes him to fall to his death. All this time, Friedersen has been watching in horror as the city has torn itself apart. Grot and Friedersen need a mediator, so Maria tells Frieder he can be that link. He helps the two men shake hands, and a new, less repressive world begins as credits roll. So one of the things that really stood out to me the very first time I actually watched all the way through for this podcast, and then again when we were watching The Complete Metropolis, is it is with from the beginning down to where we finally get down below into the depths is what they call it. And even down below further when we get into uh, where Maria is like essentially talking to uh, the workers underneath the ground. We start off, the movie begins at the very, very top. We get to see the skyline of Metropolis. We get to see all the hustle and bustle of life that's going on. Airplanes flying around the buildings, all kinds of stuff. And then we slowly make our way downwards until we make it to this, down to where the workers go into the elevators to go to work. And there's a shift change. One's coming up and the other is going down. We follow that group going down into the depths and we get to see them working. And then it goes back up to the top and shows us uh, the son of John, and, or Joe, sorry. And you kind of get to see as he wrestles with this idea that, you know, why am I up here when there are people who are working, who actually made the city are down there and they're working their pants off when I'm essentially just living for pleasure. I, I found it to be very interesting this time around, just even just beginning with that 
very obvious class structure that we have in the story of the very big divide between the top, those who live at the top who are very, very rich and those who live literally underground in the, in the city underground that kind of keep the whole, metro, keep all of Metropolis together. And they're like the very lower class. I found that to be visually very interesting. And there's even at one point uh, where the subtitles in the complete Metropolis build this pyramid um, as it goes back up from being underneath the ground. It goes back up as it explains kind of about the class structure that there is in Metropolis. And that's what makes this movie particularly fascinating is that Fritz Lang isn't just drawing on the biblical stories, not just the Tower of Babel and these people living here up at the top, uh, but he's particularly drawing upon the story of Moses and he's also drawing upon the story of Germany's neighbor, the Soviet Union. Right, right. Where we very much see um, these people working in uh, very harsh conditions, and they are not really assigned names. They're all assigned numbers, and they're all bold, and they all wear the same clothes. They're all kind of assimilated into one group structure. So I think that's really amazing that Fritz Lang is able to show kind of the circular nature of history and time, how history will repeat itself with the story of the Egyptians and Moses and the Bible, and then how eventually all of that came back around on itself and the Soviet Union created this incredible force and might and power structure, but they did it off the back of slavery, essentially. So he visually represents it, and he's also bringing in this strong story allegorical message as well. Yeah, yeah, and I love that image too. It's pretty, it's actually right when, uh, so it's right when Frieder decides to go down into the depths and gets to see firsthand uh, what exactly the working conditions are like. And it's when that, it's when that big machine explodes and the temperature reaches, goes too high, and then smoke fills the area and people are like flying and falling on the ground and dying. And it's a very interesting, uh, very interesting visual because right in the middle of all this chaos, you get to see this group of men just being shoved into like literally this mouth of a machine. They're being fed to the machine um, up at the top, which is at this point transformed into a mouth. And then behind them are the workers heading kind of into that same fate, it looks like. The workers who made the Tower of Babel, which they kind of, especially those who are being thrown in the, in, in this uh, in this vision, are practically the same as those who are in the uh, the Tower of Babel story that's being told later. Um, we get to see them literally being thrown into the mouth of the machine and being fed to the machine. I like that visual um, of these workers essentially working to their death, being eaten by what uh, what Joe has pretty much commanded them to do. And it's, it's pretty much in complete control of the city. Um, and I love that visual of that mouth that these people are being thrown into. Yeah, once again, Lang is able to bridge like the modernity of living and working for like the almighty machine mm -hmm. and just this incredible greed. And don't don't it doesn't matter who dies for it as long as certain people are able to thrive. And then he draws that parallel because on screen, it's the word Moloch flashes. Yeah. Moloch is also from the Bible. And Moloch was a pagan god, and people would feed their children to Moloch. They would burn them alive in the fire, which is exactly what we see happening there, burning these people alive there, feeding it. And this is an incredible scene because Frieder realizes how paganistic the society has become. 
they're supposed to be incredibly enlightened and incredibly sophisticated, yet they have regressed so far back 4,000 years to the yeah. time of the Israelites where it seems they are back worshiping. Back then they worshiped a god and now the new god is these gigantic machines. And that brings me to, like Alan is saying, the striking visuals. They created these ginormous sets. Remember, this is 1927. Gone with the Wind hasn't come out. Lawrence of Arabia hasn't come out. There really isn't anything as a biblical epic just yet. The Ten Commandments hasn't come out yet. This is in many ways a biblical epic, and the scale is just incredible. Yeah, and especially the biblical epics that we will come to know as biblical epics are more released in the 70s, or sorry, the 60s, um, and some of the 70s. So this is 30 years before all of that. And yeah, they do have a ton of biblical themes in this. Like, you really can't miss them because they are kind of, uh, they're all kind of like, you know, just right there. But I think that's what makes this story so intriguing to me is that it is so rich in those biblical themes because not only, like you said, the story of Moses, uh, even that character of Malik, but there's also, they literally just tell the story of the Tower of Babel and how that literally relates to what's currently going on in the city of Metropolis. Um, it's really interesting to see how many of these biblical themes that Fritz Lang is putting into the story and how futuristic it is, yes, but at the same time, how allegorical it is, I think that's what makes this movie so intriguing to me, is seeing visually those stories being put to the screen, but also having a more like twist on it where it's kind of in some ways showing the the pain that's currently happening in the current state of time that this that's kind of where the, the story is birthed from is that time in, 19, in the late 1920s in Germany. And you get to see that kind of being painted on the screen, but also pulling in those biblical themes. I love it. And it, it is a little incredible to watch. Very prescient, very, uh, it's prophetic in many ways because this is a German film and it did come out before the Holocaust happened. But there was a person who lived during the Holocaust in a concentration camp and they looked around and they saw everyone had numbers, the same clothes and bald heads, shaved heads. And they realized they were living in the movie Metropolis. Mm -hmm. That would be very scary and very weird. Um, it's also interesting because Lang also brings in philosophy as well, uh, particularly Nietzsche's The Ubermensch the overman, or as we would say here in America, the Superman, the scientist, they call him the inventor Rotwang. He creates the machine man. And that's always been a very uh, prominent German idea. Nietzsche was a German philosopher. That's always been a prominent idea of just this like superhuman. Well, I'd say it's also a main token of communism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or fascism of any kind just this uh, Superman that can be the ultimate worker. And the ultimate goal in life is to not be an individual, but to work for the state, to drive the machine, to be a part of the collective. So Lang does such an incredible, succinct job, honestly, without any dialogue visually portraying that on the screen. Yeah, because like we, like you mentioned before, this is a silent film. So the way that they go about portraying dialogue is very different than how we we're used to, where the characters usually just speak it and we hear them speak it. Now, they kind of have to 
physically portray more of how they would pronounce words. And then, of course, you have the title cards that help aid this as well. But that also leads to a little bit more what we call maybe overacting in today's world. Now, of course, back then, especially since they were basing, they're more based on stage plays, um, silent films were. And there were no, there was no recorded dialogue. This is a very different way of, you know, going about dialogue, especially even from a stage play. But regardless, yeah, it is interesting to see. And also, in some ways, you can maybe even relate that super that Superman, as you were saying, to the character of uh, Frieder, because in, in a lot of ways, he's a very much a messianic figure. Um, I would say very much so, especially when we get to the scene where he meets Maria for the first time. She literally calls him out and says, you're the mediator. Um, now, of course, if you don't have the complete Metropolis, you might miss that scene. But regardless, the character of Frieder is the person who is going to be the the man who you reunites or maybe unites the those who work and keep the city alive and the man who is pretty much controlling the whole thing, his dad. And you get to see that visual at the very end, of course, he's taking their hands and they get to meet for the first time, at least in the first time that we are seeing. Um, very much a messianic figure. And in some ways I can key, I can kind of see where that, even that superhuman or that superman um, idea is played into his character as well. Yeah, and the like I said, the Superman, the Machine Man, ultimately ultimately becomes the antagonist in the story. Becomes very much the anti messianic figure or antichrist, if you will, in the mm -hmm. story, leading the city into complete perdition. Even once the the Machine a Man says, once it's Maria says, "Let's watch the city go to the devil." I think a lot of modern audiences will actually connect with this story. I'm particularly thinking of The Matrix, where it's more of an updated uh, CGI visual feast of it instead, where Neo is the one and there is this wild contrast between both worlds and come to find out the true world is ruled by machines and everybody is under the control of the machines. So I know the Wachowski siblings had to have seen Metropolis and drew some inspiration from that. So I think a lot of modern audiences won't have trouble connecting with this story. And that's also because this story does draw on a lot of archetypes, the mediator, the one, the Messiah. This is all an archetype for a savior figure that will bring salvation to the people. Another example is Alex Preuss's film, I, Robot where it is a machine that is the savior of the other machines. I recommend that movie. Um, so not just uh, is Frieder an archetype of like Jesus or Moses or a Superman type figure, but there are also other archetypes in this movie as well. Um, there's a great flood at the end of the movie. Yeah. Not just Noah's Ark, but also Gilgamesh. The flood narrative is in a lot of ancient writings which leads us to believe that is something that was stuck in people's minds uh, across many different cultures and generations. So it is cool to see Lang bringing in these like ancient events, these archetypal events, and also weaving them here into his story. Yeah, and it's also interesting too, because now that you mentioned the flood, I definitely see that. And usually water is used to symbolize some kind of rebirth, right? usually used to say or used to symbolize some kind of cleansing um, of oneself. Uh, I would say that even the 
this isn't, I guess, really a spoiler because it's, it's literally on the cover of the Shawshank Redemption. Um, it's a story. You get to see how this rain washes away this man's filth. And if you watch the movie, it makes even more powerful impact. But it's kind of the same thing here. The They stop using the machines and they start destroying the machines, actually, and even go for the heart of the machines, what they call it. And you get to see how underground that causes a big mess. They they uh, Those who were working there have come, have actually left their kids and went up to revolt. And in doing so, they put their kids at danger and they would have died if the good Maria wasn't there, the real Maria. If she wasn't there to save them, then they would have been, they would have been dead. Either way, what happens is because of that, water starts flooding the underground. And by the end of the story, you know, every the the crowd has a change in they have a revelation, more or less. And they're brought back to uh and looking at the situation in a different way. Whereas before they kind of felt like, and this is partially because of the bad Maria, they felt like they were being oppressed because they were just being shoved down in the into the basement and being told to work, 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 work. Even though they were the ones who essentially ran the city. Well, now when the when it actually floods and their entire basement and all of their lives are pretty much gone they kind of have this revelation of well there needs to be some kind of some kind of meeting between that the person who works or the person who heads metropolis and those who work for metropolis so it's kind of an interesting visual there to also see while it is destructive and completely rips apart everything it is in some ways a reimagining of how it, how things should work in Metropolis. Yeah, before there's any sort of major change, there always has to be kind of this like cleansing, this destruction. Yeah. The, everything like the old has to be washed away so the new can come. And that's really conveyed well there at the end. The other thing that Lang also plays within this movie is a lot of different warring ideas. It doesn't seem to be a very progressive society and the fact that it seems like man has kind of really reached his his zenith as far as like technological advancements go but then of course maria shows how like history is just like folded back in on itself with the tower of babel and how that ended very badly but uh, lang also brings in kind of like middle ages occultism or black magic and then real science as well, because on Rotwing's the the door of his house and above the machine man, he has like pentagrams everywhere. And also when they do uh, get rid of the fake Maria, they call her the witch and they burn her at the stake. They are burning uh, the witches, which we all know was a very popular thing to do. Um, so it is interesting to see how in an age of advancement, People are still like turning to paganism. People are still reverting to occultism, to uh, utter nonsense. And that's because the true nonsense as well is um, this really repressive um, leadership style that Friedersen does. He becomes a complete dictator as well. And I think it's interesting. The movie kind of explores this idea of like corporate socialism where instead of it's like there doesn't really seem to be a government in charge of the city it's mostly a corporation headed by one man and he seems to be in charge of the city i know that was kind of an idea that um some 
German economists always kind of worried about is what if all these corporations kind of got together yeah, <laughs> and yeah. then they created like a super monopoly and ruled everything and there really wasn't any regulation. But once again, all of this to say that Lang is bringing in a lot of big concepts at play here as well. And I would even say he brings in some Greek mythology mm -hmm. where um, he brings in, uh, they almost seem to be up on Mount Olympus in the Club of Sons. Yeah where yeah. they're running track and they're playing in the garden of pleasure with these women, definitely drawing on some like Greek mythological imagery there as well. I mean, as you kind of just mentioned a second ago, uh, they, at the very end, when they finally revolt against the bad Maria or the fake Maria, uh, they call her a witch, right? And of course, kind of regressing and history repeating itself, you also have the Salem witch, tri the Salem witch trials, which did, practically the same thing. So it, that's also another, I guess, evidence towards that idea that, or this idea that the movie has of history just repeating itself. And there are a lot of, there there are a lot of, uh, I guess one good visual of this is when, uh, is when Frieder takes over the job of one of the workers downstairs, um, where he's, it's kind of like, it looks like this clock almost that he's like, he has grabbed both arms and there are lights that flash at, ran, at random points on this, like, on the circle and he has to move these two arms to match where those lights are at. And he has to do that for 10 hours and it looks like a clock. And it's really interesting to see how the circle as history kind of repeating itself again, how you just constantly doing this for 10 hours a day. And what this actually does is not really explained to us, but it's an interesting visual to see because once Frieder takes it over, it does literally turn into a clock and he asks father, how long does this 10 hour shift need to last? It's an interesting visual to see that that cycle pretty much. And yeah, that scene was incredible when he yells out to the father, which I can't help but feel like there is some of that more uh, Christological imagery where the Christ figure is suffering. He is suffering on behalf of the people. And in that moment, God does turn his back on him. Yeah, it's just really incredible how he really brings all of that in there. And yeah, uh, Lang does definitely play with visuals in really unique ways. And that's something that I think really uh, just I just really realized that while watching this movie is we don't get some of these visuals really anymore. I mean, you'll have a gem once in a while with some really stunning creative visual imagery but I miss I miss seeing those kind of visuals in movies. And even though CGI has surpassed these movies today and what they can do with scale, I mean, look at uh, we just reviewed Inception. Yeah, that yeah. has some incredible visuals, but these are all practical effect effects. These are all gigantic sets that they built. And there's just something about those sets and those uh, visions that they convey that are just really incredible to behold. Yeah, and especially because it's made in 1927. Yeah. That, I think that's the most impressive part to me is that these sets look gorgeous. And uh, it's crazy to think that this was made when there weren't even, there wasn't even spoken dialogue in films yet. Now in a few years it would be, but at the time it's extremely impressive. And even then, um, I'm, I remember reading some critic or hearing about critic reviews where they were astonished by how good the movie looks. And yeah, it's it, it's really interesting to see how much of the, just the design alone, as I mentioned earlier, has 
carried over into film still now. Blade Runner is a good example of this, uh, where just even that that visual of the big tower that exists in the middle of a metropolis where Frieder and Joe and Joe work more or less where, where Joe was at. Um, you do get to see that visual kind of come up in Blade Runner uh, when they are flying to the police station. It, it is visually similar. Um, but I do kind of want to go back to the idea that you, the idea you brought up just a second ago with uh, kind of corporate um, control, right? Because that's very much a main idea of cyberpunk, the, the, the kind of the subgenre of cyberpunk, which is again, Blade Runner, because uh, cyberpunk is very much focused on what well, one of the one of the things that's focused on is that corporate control, right? Where it's not really a central government that's in control, it's more of a company that's in control. Um, that's just kind of a main idea of of uh, of cyberpunk. So I can I can I can only believe that cyberpunk is kind of taking away from Metropolis, which Metropolis are in itself is already kind of steampunk anyways. Um, so I can see where a lot of cyberpunk ideas are pulling off of this movie. And of course, off of uh, Blade Runner, which is kind of the thing that really, really kickstarted cyberpunk back in the 80s. Just wait until next week, because there are some major steampunk uh, corporatism <laughs> bottled up in there where it's a lot of these corporate machines yeah. that are running everything. It's pretty fascinating to behold that as well. And that is interesting you say that because you haven't seen the metropolis next week right and that's exactly what uh rentaro does when he creates the anime film we'll be talking about okay but i was also really amazed when you go back to 1927 yeah i mean there was tall buildings but there really wasn't skyscrapers as we know them today and the fact that lang envisioned uh, skyscrapers with ginormous highways those weren't a thing yet yeah um, those have really come into existence, um, more so in the fifties here in America when Eisenhower commissioned like interstates and there's also the German Autobahn as well. But in this visual, we see, um, what look like, like Amtrak type trains going yep. along, yep. not steam powered locomotives. Those, uh, those type of electric trains hadn't even been invented yet. Giant cars, highways planes flying around through the city and now we see planes flying in the sky everywhere planes were not a commercial enterprise really back then no no they had like they had just been invented no more than 20 years before 20 ish years and also i was really blown away um lang created uh i don't know whatever what do you want to call it skype facetime yeah he talks to uh up in the tower of babel friederson talks with Grot through video, he video calls him. This is in 1927. Yep, yep. <laughs> and this stuff hadn't even been conceived yet. I mean, I think that really came into mainstream culture when people watched Star Trek and they talked with each other on cell phones and through video recorders and whatnot. But also, I, I dare say anyone had really ever seen a robot before. In, in 1927. And yeah, we do get a humanoid robot as well, which looks a lot like C-3PO. Yeah, no, the design of the machine man in this movie is, yeah, very similar to C-3PO's design in Star Wars. But yeah, it is interesting to see, again, more a more, I guess, modern, well, I guess not really modern per se, but a, a very pop example of pulling ideas from Metropolis. 
it was really incredible to see that as well. Now I'll say the first time my jaw dropped with the scenes and I thought, wow, this is going to be something special is really probably around those first scenes when the workers are descending underground. Yeah. And you see that they have built um, like giant fluorescent lights into the into the above ground areas. So there is an entire city underground. There are entire our entire apartment houses underground and then there are like giant um lights placed into the earth as well so these people can live underground they can live pretty much um in this darkness and i thought whoa i've never seen anything like that with a city underground and they like build there's no sun underground but it's like completely lit up by these lights it was really weird um also i, I was it we get into some horror elements here mm -hmm. in this movie, I would say, not just when um, Rot Wang is um, chasing Maria through the dark as well, but also when uh, Frieder goes down the stairs and he opens up this door and above the door it just says five. And inside there is a giant factory as well. And they have like these giant uh, furnaces and ovens and people are driving around working. And that gave me some uh serious uh terry gilliam brazil vibes as well uh, brazil really drew a lot from this film visually also and i had i this is kind of weird but i did have some hellraiser vibes <laughs> also with this just like uh you go into it's just like a room but within that room contains this like kind of like nightmarish workplace yeah i would even say especially when during the intermezzo um where you get to see where uh, Frieder has that nightmare and you kind of get to see his fears of um, of Maria. I guess the symbol that she stands for pretty much being taken and then flipped completely on its head. And then, of course, right after the intermezzo, you get to see how that has actually kind of come true in a lot of ways. Um, but you you get to see how Maria's who Maria is, how she what she stands for, which is very much on very much for purity and for hope. Um, you get to see how it especially with the fake Maria, how that's completely turned on its head. And you, it's kind of visually represented by the seven deadly sins. We get a brief shot of it earlier. And as he, as he looks at this kind of, uh, this display of it, and it shows each one of them and then death in the middle. Um, and then later when he's having that, that dream, you get to see how this, I think they actually say, um, the, all the sins have been cast upon her pretty much. And you get to see how all these corporate men are practically lusting over the her. And then of course, everything else is going along with that uh, when it counts for all the sins. And then you get to see how death kind of comes up and he has the scythe and he swings the scythe. And that's when the main character kind of blacks out for like, I guess the third, the third time and it cuts away from the intermezzo and, and moves along. It's really interesting to see that visual because at that time, Maria to the audience has been built up as this hope, this hope figure, this pure figure. And now we get to see kind of that horror element of it where you where the uh, inventor has made the the robot, the bad Maria, the machine man has now taken over of that of that role. And as you mentioned earlier, very much an antichrist figure, it looks like. Yeah. And one thing that I found to be I was glad to see it in there. I hadn't I had missed it in the other versions was the book of Revelation does play an important role in this because in the book of Revelation, or as it is called in the movie, the Apocalypse of John, um, they talk about kind of uh, the harlot of Babylon 
and this new Maria is that, and there, there still is a scene missing of the priest reading from Revelation, but we do get the scene described to us and we get to see the image in the Bible that he's reading. And it's like a direct, the image is a direct recreation of what we will see later on with the anti-Maria. And yeah, how she has very much um, fulfilled that. She has taken like all these world powers and brought her, brought them under her one control and how the book of Revelation does kind of play out into this movie as well with that anti-Maria. I found that to be surprising because I didn't expect that at all. Um, and they're not really talking about it more so as just the end of the world, as most people think of Revelation, but more so just um, this real kind of like cataclysmic, uh, awful turn of events, uh, particularly with this one kind of antichrist figure uh kind of bringing everything under under its power we see in the movie this movie does bring up the word this movie does say the word apocalypse more than one time as well um and so i and i know that in the bible uh the books are kind of sectioned off into like i guess kind of general themes as to what uh each of those books that's in that like i guess group you can call it there's a specific word i can't really think of it at the top of my head but kind of what they are talking about. And I know that Revelation is under uh, apocalyptic literature, right? So it's interesting that they bring up the apocalypse um, of John is what they call it. Uh, so it's interesting to see how that kind of plays into the story of Metropolis where it's, it, it's after a certain point, it's literally falling apart because the workers are no longer wanting to work anymore. They're wanting to uh, pretty much get what they are have worked for. They want to be on that topper level. And it's also interesting too, because visually there really is i guess no middle class per se they're either always very very rich and they live up where john where, where joe lives and also where uh where frieder lives but then you've also got the lower class which is all the workers who literally live underground those are really the only two sides of the story that we get to see and so when they finally meet together there is kind of an apocalypse of sorts um in some kind of a fashion where or maybe even the uh there's a danger of there being an apocalypse of the city where if the workers aren't willing to, you know, work and do their job and the and the guy who's running the city isn't willing to work with them, then the city literally just won't survive. And so it's interesting to see how that's where Frieder comes in and he's, as they say, he's the mediator. The guy who runs the city is the brain or the head and the people who run the, and the people who are downstairs and are making the city work for the man who is the head are the hands. And of course you have the mediator, which is Frieder, who is the heart. And he meets them in between and says, this is said a few times, but they say uh, that the the heart is mediated between the head and the hands. So it's interesting to see all that vis those visually as well, where you don't really have middle class, but there is kind of a middle ground between the two of them. Yeah, and I like that idea of unity, how people do have different skills and gifts, some people are more so thinkers and then, but they're not necessarily able to execute it. And Maria brings that up in the Tower of Babel story, how these thinkers conceived the Tower of Babel, but they had no way to build it. So they had to use slaves uh, in order to build it. They had to subject people into that. They did not have a choice until the people rose up as well. So there we see this like, power and force we see a real power struggle there and that's exactly what's been going on in metropolis but there definitely needs to be more mutual respect 
and love. And that's where the mediator comes in between those two things. The heart is the mediator between the head and the hands. Yeah. That's a big point of this movie as well. I know critics thought that was kind of fluffy or cheesy or like too idealistic or romanticized. But it is interesting because in, a, in an early 70s interview, Fritz Lang, who was living in America at the end of his life, he was saying that he talked with the young people of that time and he would ask them, like, what do they think about the heart being the connection between the head and the hands? And they said that they really loved that idea and that we do have to genuinely have a heart when it comes to workplaces, with family relationships, with any kind of dynamic. So Lang was like, well, maybe my wife really wasn't wrong after all. Maybe she was tapping into something that that was important. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that in the chosen one cut that I have, they I felt at least I felt like they brought up this mediator portion a lot more than what they did in the complete Metropolis. But at the same time, they also didn't really have Frieder as the mediator uh, nearly as much as they did in the complete Metropolis in the chosen one cut, because they never really mention Frieder as that mediator person in that older cut. Um, now, of course, thematically, uh, I picked up on it, um, but they never really outright, they never really came out and said it outright. And that's one of the things that I found to be very interesting is kind of the difference between cuts of these movies, especially when you watch uh, The Complete Metropolis compared to even what I was, what I was subjected to, which was the previous 2001 cut, it kind of paints, there are, at least there are a lot of things that are painted very, very differently. One of those being... Uh, the character Frieder. Now, like I said, thematically, I picked up on it, but you've also got characters who affect this main character, like the tall man is what they call him, who is completely absent in uh, in that chosen one cut, aside from a couple of shots, but you would never know that he had anything to do with the story unless you had seen those missing scenes that are in The Complete Metropolis, where he has a pretty big hand in that pot uh, to try and bring down uh, what the sun into of course, doing. He tries to bring down that mediator side of him. Uh, of course, he fails, but that is one of the things that is completely missing from uh, the 2001 cut. I would say that the 2001 cut should probably only be watched as a curiosity, as a point in time where they were at with working on the Metropolis film. At that point, that was the most complete version of the film that had brand new footage no one had ever seen. Mm -hmm. It did fill in connective gaps, even though some scenes were out of order. They were doing their best to create the fullest vision possible at the time. But it is very much an inferior product now that we do have the complete metropolis. So I would say for your first go around, you probably should watch the complete metropolis if you really do want the full story. Otherwise, I would say the Giorgio Moroder 80s cut, um, the coloring, I think, works well in some scenes. Some of the new musical pieces actually work very well. Some others, I would say, get tedious, but it's only 80 minutes long. There's no intertitles. There are only subtitles. Um, the story doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's more of a big picture idea, but... That was important because that introduced people to Metropolis. So I would say if you're timid about watching a two and a half hour silent film uh, with quite a few deep themes to it, then the Marauder cut might be a decent place for you to start. Just realize 
some things are really not going to make sense. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that uh, when it came, when I finally, when we did watch the complete Metropolis, I think I probably can speak for the both speak for the both of us. It made way more sense than at least the cut that I had watched. The cut I I had watched, I was able to track with it, but it's you know it's not really pieced together very well, and that's because especially when you get to, towards the ending, some of these scenes are kind of out of order. They're not in the right place. So it kind of makes it hard to follow when uh, things are not correct. Now, The Complete Metropolis felt way more to me like a, like more of a movie in a lot of ways because, you know, now I'm able to see, okay, this is where th this is where the scene makes sense. There are a lot of things that are cleaned up. And if they don't have the footage for it, then they have an inner title that kind of explains, okay, this is what's happening right here. This was what should be happening right here. So you're not really missing a whole lot. Uh, now, of course, visually you're missing some, but the whole, like, again, the whole story is there, even if you are missing some of those visual elements. So the complete metropolis, uh, is as far as we have in our possession, the most complete version of metropolis that's out there. Um, unfortunately we are still missing some footage, um, that we are, as far as we know is unrecoverable, but we at least have what well, we at least have this much. I know for a lot of films, especially from that era of, of filmmaking before they really realized that, you know, hey, wait a second, uh, this actual physical film is, uh, it degrades really easily <laughs> <laughs> and it will it will disappear after a while. Uh, we actually have something that is almost completely finished. I know that I think the estimate is like, like 90% of the films shot in that era are basically lost to time because they were put in a vault when they were done and they essentially just deteriorated. So at least we have this much of Metropolis. It's really a miracle, yeah. honestly, that we do have this. And if you do want to know more about how it was found, how it was restored, how it all came together, definitely go back and listen to the story of Metropolis, where I talk in depth about that as well. But it was great to see that character setups are paid off in the third act. And brand new character motivations like finally make sense. I just remember watching those cuts. Georgie disappears. The thin man disappears. Yep. Um, it's super important that we learn that um, Rotwang is um, Frieder's grandfather, that hell who was the, why he made the machine man. That was Frieder's uh, mom. And um, it actually gives um, Friederson, his dad, it actually gives him a soul. He's like really lamenting the loss of his wife. He's not just a one dimensional character anymore. Unfortunately, that was lost for so long. And so a lot of character setups never pay off. And a lot of character motivations seem out of left field um, because they're never explained because those scenes were lost. So yeah, just our take on the three different cuts. It was so incredible to see everything pieced together in its right order and to listen to it with a brand new fresh recording in oh, high man. definition of uh, Hooper's masterpiece score. Yeah, no, this score, especially because it is uh, recorded with modern equipment, um, sounds incredible because if, it, if we had the original score from back in 1927 it would be on it would be one channel be a mono track and we wouldn't get to hear the all the individual instruments and being it being mixed in surround sound i think that's what makes this experience that uh with the complete metropolis watching it in your theater room corbin made it so amazing because that score is in 
surround sound. You get to hear a more a modern recording of it. I think that's what made it more impactful um, this time around. Hearing that still original score, but just recorded on more modern equipment, it sounds incredible. And thank goodness that they were able to still find and retain the original score. It was uh, kept with um, the composer's estate. He kept the score, and then when he passed away, they were able to get the music. Now, keep in mind that the original script from the movie was lost. They don't have that at all. They don't even have um, shooting notes or anything like that. So the way they were able to reconstruct the complete Metropolis was with the score. They were able to see how the score played out, where certain beats were, and then they were able to line it up with certain shots like, oh, yeah, that would synchronize with this shot as well. So just to bring it up also, this score is vital to yeah. this film. If they didn't have the score we would probably never know what the full film would be like or, or experience the full impact. Um, when I was watching the 2001 cut you have, I thought that was the score and I was so yeah. disappointed. Yeah, there is, there's, the score is very choppy in that one. There are a lot of pieces that are repeated um, very often sometimes. Uh, so this, I think that's kind of why uh, when I was watching it the first time, my thoughts on Metropolis, while visually striking, this is when I first watched that two's one cut, um, while visually, visually striking was kind of off-putting because that score was, eh, well, fine at times, it was also very repetitive and uh, was also sometimes very choppy. So I just kind of was like, eh, not really a, a big fan of it. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it did not sound very good in that two's one cut. And it is just incredible how they have been able to digitally clean up the film. Oh, yeah. I know. Thank goodness for digital, <laughs> because a lot of these older films have tons of scratch, like so many scratches. I mean, and um, they did keep some of the original film elements into the film um, because they weren't able to physically fix them or per like recover the entirety of the shot. Mm -hmm. So they did keep black bars on the top and side just so you would know that there is a fuller shot than that instead of just blowing it up to fit the full aspect ratio. But it is truly incredible because the Marauder 80s cut is cleaned up okay enough. Like I, I was pretty impressed with how they were able to clean that up in the 80s. The 2001 cut, which although it did come out in 2001, may not have been the complete reauthorized edition that you have because this was in the public domain for a while. So there were a couple different copies that were dispersed, but the image quality on your 2001 cut was awful. Yeah, it's really bad. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm gonna be buying the Blu-ray once <laughs> I get the chance um, because especially watching it in the theater room, it looks incredible and getting to see those, the especially the shots of the city where it isn't super overexposed and you can actually, you know, make out a lot of the details, especially when it comes to the model work with all the cars. Um, that's, it looks incredible. Because that uh, 2001 cut does not look very good because everything is, everything, everything just feels way overexposed and all, everything that's dark is way too dark and it just, it's a mess. So, Again, while it is visually interesting, especially if it does in one cut, uh, it's just it's just not the best, not the best Metropolis experience, which is unfortunate because at the time, that's kind of really all that they had. The story was kind of out of order. Uh, it, I guess from the version that I had, which 
again, just came from some box set that my cousin got for like five bucks at Walmart. Didn't have the best picture quality. The inner car, the inner titles were way off uh, center. It's yeah. just kind of a mess. <laughs> the inner titles were way off. And I don't know if they were completely accurate. Yeah, there I know I did notice a lot of um, wording differences between the 2001 cut and the complete metropolis. Most of them were, as far as I could tell, most of them were saying the same thing. They were just worded differently. I was surprised because in the beginning of the 2001 cut, it does open with a quote from uh, his wife, Tia, who did write the screenplay. And she says, this isn't a movie about any particular time or location or any sort of political message whatsoever. It's just like a, a story about humanity something like that yeah you noticed that wasn't in the 2010 cut yeah i noticed that and i'm wondering because i saw in an interview with fritz lang he said like the exact opposite of what she <laughs> said about the movie he's like yeah when movies are made movies should be about their time their cultural climate uh their you know philosophical theological ideas of mm -hmm. that time he's like that's what movies are about and he's like i'm drawing from what's happening now and from history as well. So probably they took that out because it it was kind of strange. I didn't really understand it. Yeah, I think I've got the quote here. The quote is, this film is not of today or of the future. It tells us no place. It serves no tendency, party or class. It has no moral. It has a moral that grows on the pillar of understanding. And then the quote of the mediator between the brain and muscle must be the heart. Theo von Harbo. Mm -hmm. So that is interesting that they took it out in the complete metropolis. And I guess it kind of makes sense because this is a movie that I feel is very timeless. Um, now, it does have some date on it, obviously, because there is no recorded dialogue. Um, and a lot of the sets, while they do look visually stunning from 1927, you can definitely tell that there is model work being done on them. But besides the fact, I think that what the film talks about in its thematic elements, I think that's what makes it so timeless is because it is a movie about kind of that middle ground, you know, not, not necessarily, you know, the brain is the one that controls everything or not necessarily the, and this, and this, as this quote says, the muscle that controls everything. It's kind of the middle ground. It's that heart that really should be the one that is the mediator between the two of them that kind of piece everything together. It does have a very um, timeless quality to it. And I do love that bridges the emotional and the mechanical. That's really what we're supposed to get at the end is kind of coming back to scripture in a way how like we have one body, but the body has different parts and those different parts have different purposes. And without a certain part, um, you know, the body wouldn't be complete and it wouldn't be able to function properly. And that's kind of how I see this film as well as the whole city is a body, but certain parts of the body were uh, abusing each other and being neglected. And then there is kind of this uh, civil war strife between um, those sections of the body. And then in order for things to run smoothly as they should, like they hit the boiling point and then they do come back together um, as well. And that is physically represented with the bridging of the hands between the poor, the rich, and uh the young and the old it's it's a great there at the end i would say yeah and it's i would say that the city of metropolis like you just said is very representative not necessarily i guess that's shown to us but kind of represented in a way of being this body 
right? You have the ones who are down in the basement who are kind of working the show. They are the ones who have the muscle. But you've also got the guy who lives upstairs who is the one who is the brains of the operation. And of course, the kid is in the mediator. He's the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you do get the there is this sense of this machine, more or less, that's working together with a bunch of people working together to make it operate. The city is kind of the body of these people's lives and working them working together. It makes the city operate. And this, the minute that it begins to turn on itself, uh, that's when people's lives are put at danger. Literally, in the end of the story, people's kids are down below and the adults that were working are willing to give up without really even realizing, willing to give up the life that they have down in the basement um, to revolt and hopefully find another better life. At, but forget that as also at the exchange of their children, the people who are literally going to be the ones who take this new found this newfound uh, change in how the structure works and actually start implementing that. And the ones that, you know, they're going to take on the parents' legacy, they're willing to give that up without even realizing it. And I know Lang was worried when he was living in America in the 70s, and he was seeing kind of his vision of Metropolis materializing insofar as machines were becoming an integral part of people's lives. And even since then, now into... A new century machines are i mean we're recording on machines we're mm -hmm. looking at machines we watched this movie on a machine we've got machines in our pocket how machines are like just completely pertinent to our life now and i know he was becoming kind of worried about that but like i mentioned earlier he did have hope for our future that we wouldn't really fall into that despotism because um he did see there was a lot of compassion uh, within the American ideal of it wasn't always very much compassion over there in Germany <laughs> mm -hmm. when it came to uh, those things and in Russia and things like that. But that's kind of the contrast as well. And that's why he, you know, chose to live in America is that kind of compassion and that hope for the future, which this film ends on a hopeful note, which is yeah. nice to see. It does. Yeah, it absolutely does. And also, you know, there, I do remember this story of like the man versus the machine where it's the, uh, it's this man being put up against this machine and their goal is to see how far they can dig before one gives out, right? The story is of the human who digs so much and puts in so much effort that it, it literally kills him just of exhaustion alone. Um, it's kind of interesting to kind of see that kind of play out in this story as well, where the machine man is supposedly supposed to be in some ways better than a human. Um, it's supposed to be act like a human, it's going to be like a human, and eventually it almost comes to control the humans that live there. Even though they're trying to revolt against, you know, the machines that they work on, they're willing to follow unsuspectingly uh, a machine in and of itself. Um, of course, this story kind of takes that and turns it a different way, where instead of the humans dying in the end, well, there is a danger of that, they end up realizing that, wait a minute, this machine that we've been following is literally just taking us just eventually to kill us and when it's all said and done. So they are able to rectify that, but it is, I still do see that parallel of the man versus the machine story. I had forgot all about that story until you brought that up. I believe they were building like a railway it or was, something. Yeah, yeah, I believe you're right. Or maybe digging a tunnel for a railroad. Yeah, I forgot all about that now. And yeah, the sto this story does bring that up as well because originally um, Rotwang's uh, machine man, seems to be beneficial actually because yeah. it would 
liberate the people from extreme manual labor. He's saying like this machine man will be able to do the work and never grow tired. It will never need sleep. It'll never need to eat like a man would. Um, but then his motives turn very quickly. And then he says, nah, I just want you to destroy everything. I want you to turn uh, the rich uh, against each other. And I want you to turn the poor against the rich and they'll both eat each other alive because he's driven by uh, his extreme hatred of the fact that his daughter hell was taken from him right so i think there is that cautionary tale within itself is that although technology can be beneficial technology unchecked will eventually overrun your life without you realizing it will overtake you uh, without realizing it without there being any kind of regulation so i do see the, the cautionary tale um within that as well and i think it's also interesting because we have reached a point and we've been going through this point for many many decades now but where automation has taken over workers jobs and i know people are always afraid that they're going to be outsourced by a computer or something but uh, that's just kind of an uh, interesting way to think because society has been technologically progressing for, you know, the past 100 years or more, creating new technologies. And then people just always find new jobs working on the machines. And it's the people that keep the machines running. Not even though some machines build themselves, you still need that human element to run the machines. Unfortunately, the machines are like running the people. The machines have become the god in this story. Well, with all that said, Alan, I'm very curious. What is your rating and recommendation for Metropolis? So I kind of, I've, I guess I feel like I always do knew that Metropolis was a masterpiece, right? I had always been told from many, many people who I guess I've read about or read the reviews on or anybody who's really talked about Metropolis has always said Metropolis is a masterpiece. And even after I kind of watched, you know, bits and pieces of it, I would say I think I even got as far as the first maybe 20 minutes into it. I never really got that, oh, is it really a masterpiece? Is it not? And even when I watched it for the first time all the way through with that choice one cut, I was like, is it really a masterpiece? Like it's, it looks great. And, and I understand thematically what it's going for, but is it really a masterpiece? It wasn't until I finally watched the complete Metropolis, where I finally got the full picture and I finally get to see everything explained the way it was supposed to be explained or as much as I could explain it finally out on the table and for me to actually look at it also with some foreknowledge of the previous movie um, going into this and I get to see, okay, now I understand what the story is. Now I understand what Fritz Lang is going for, like really going for this time with almost every element that he puts in the story. And I have to say, especially for 1927, yeah, it's a masterpiece. Holy crap, this movie looks good. And holy crap, especially with that uh, complete Metropolis and that new recorded score, it sounds amazing. So I love the visuals of this city that looks so perfect on the, out on the outside. But once you dig down deeper, it's not so perfect on the inside. And in the and in uh, Joe Joe's pursuit of control, he spoils the one thing that kind of was the thing that kept hope in those workers downstairs. And that's the thing that revolted. Uh, that's the thing that just almost aided 
in the revolt against him and almost cost him his son at the very end of the story. So it's really cool to see this, especially come out of a place, like I mentioned earlier, kind of out of a place of pain almost, of what's going on in the current events of the world. This comes out of that, especially around 1927. So yeah, I will absolutely buy this on Blu-ray. I I've kind of beginning to fall in love with it in some kind of in some kind of fashion. I really wanted to find the soundtrack somewhere if it's on Apple Music or something and listen to it because it sounds really really good. Uh, all let's say, yeah, uh, Metropolis is a great movie. Uh, Eleven out of ten. Highest of recommends if you haven't seen it. I would say it's a movie that you definitely should, especially if you're one that wants to get deeper into film. Fritz Lang's Metropolis is not only a prophetic vision of cinema, but of life as it would come to be under communist and Nazi rule. Sadly, it was lost for many decades, but now it is complete and oh, is it a vision to behold. Nearly every modern science fiction film of the past century has taken some visual design cues or story concepts from Metropolis. Despite the usage of modern CGI and even miniatures creating breathtaking worlds, I have never seen imagery quite like what's represented here in this film. And to make it all the more stunning, this movie came out in 1927, 93 years ago. Cinema owes a great debt to this triumphal masterpiece. And sadly, Lang will never know how important his film has been on cinema. All the three versions widely available, I recommend the complete version because it is the cleanest and greatest vision to Lang's original. I do actually recommend Marauder's 80s version as well, because while it is unique, it also features some stunning musical cues that line up nicely with the then 60-year-old film. For film fans of any genre, Metropolis is an absolute must-see. Metropolis receives 10 stars out of 10 with my highest recommendation. So, Alan, you said you're already going to pick up the complete Metropolis on Blu-ray, but do you think you would ever pick up Giorgio Moroder's Metropolis edition? Because Kino International also released that on Blu-ray as well. Oh, hmm. I guess I'll have to watch it first because I, I wasn't able to watch it for this review, but I, I guess I'll have to watch it before I make that decision because I, I think my fear is that it's going to be more like that 2001 uh, release where... It's, it's kind of, especially now, I just, I just have to preface for the time, it was great because there is more footage there than what was previously available. But because it lives in the shadow now of the complete Metropolis, it's kind of hard for me to say unless I actually go back and watch it. But you do make a pretty some pretty good points where some of the things in there, while you should still watch the complete Metropolis, it's still worth the time seeing that, uh, that Marauder cut from the 80s. Just as like maybe even... A curiosity piece. I may have to go back and watch it to see if I own it on Blu-ray, but I do definitely want to see it. Yeah, many people have called the 80s version a curiosity, but I do at least recommend everyone see it just so they can see something very different, I would say, from the complete Metropolis. And it's you don't really come necessarily for the story in that one because it's 80 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> a lot is missing. But you mostly come for the visuals and kind of to see the gap bridge between uh, early century silent film. And it does very much bring in music from the 80s. Um, I, although Marauder, he also does it with a lot of famous 80s uh, musical stars as well. I was kind of really curious. I would have liked to have seen like Vangelis. 
do Ooh, something with it. That would be interesting. But in a way, it's interesting to see that Metropolis is kind of a film that still is able to transcend um, its time and it's still able to work with 80s musical brand new instruments. They didn't have synthesizers back in the 20s, mm-hmm. but that they're able to use that and for it to still like work really well. I think that's a testament to the film overall, but I would honestly actually love to see maybe a new cut of the film, but with even more modern music, maybe with Vangelis doing something or I don't know, I would just I would think that would be an interesting experiment to do, not probably something for commercial (laughs) consumption, but just to like play with it in your home usage and see like what you could do with this movie. But yeah, I'll I'll be picking up that Blu-ray as well. So as for other film recommendations, and I even have one book recommendation, I do recommend uh, if you really enjoyed this movie, read George Orwell's 1984. Ah, yes. I have yet to watch it, but I I hear a lot about it, which, I mean, isn't, I guess, no surprise because that's a very uh, influential book. Yeah, I would suggest reading the book. You can definitely watch the movie as well. I love the book. But I have a lot of film recommendations because I was like, wow, this movie inspired a lot of other movies. So my other film recommendations are The Matrix, iRobot, Dark City, which iRobot and Dark City are from the same director, Blade Runner, uh, more recently, Mortal Engines draws a lot from this movie, I realized. Ghost in the Shell and Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I guess my number one recommendation is Blade Runner because of how much it pulls from this story. Uh, Visually, there's a lot of things that are in Metropolis that are very easily transferred over into Blade Runner. So I would definitely say Blade Runner is the way to go. You can probably also get away with 2049, Blade Runner 2049 as well, but definitely that original one is very, you can definitely see, especially watching this, you can definitely see the influences from Metropolis into Blade Runner. But listeners, we will be back next week with Metropolis. That's right, 2002? 2001. Okay, 2001. Okay, yeah. Now, this is a this is the movie that I had heard about before Corbin had, and I wanted to see it so bad. It was probably attached to like the recommendation section or the more more titles like this section of IMDb for Ghost in the Shell is where I found this. I've been wanting to see this for at least two, maybe three years, and it's been on my Amazon wish list for a while, but I have yet to actually watch it. And I'm really excited because I really want to see it. So we are getting back to anime. We began two weeks ago with a, an anime. I don't think very many people have seen Jinro the Wolf Brigade. Mm-hmm. And now we're coming back to an anime, which I think not very many people have seen or at least remember. Maybe it was at the time. I know I had never heard of it, but I did pick up the steel book uh, a couple months back as well. Oh. I'm so happy that I did. Mm-hmm. The Steelbook is incredible. So this is directed by Rintaro. It is still called Metropolis. It's not quite the same movie. It's not really a remake. It really does reimagine it. Uh, it really does uh, go in new avenues. And it is interesting because Roger Ebert said that if you haven't seen an anime movie before, then this is a great place to start. So, listeners, we're very excited to introduce you to that anime and talk about that as well next week. So, the question after the show is, had you heard of this movie? 
before this review? And how was your first experience seeing the film? I'm also curious, we're both very curious, which version of this film did you see? Uh, because Alan said, and he was right, the Marauder version was on Netflix for a while, which is widely consumable. So I think a lot of people, that was probably also their introduction as well. So I'm curious to see what you think, listeners. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with Rentaro's Metropolis. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.